This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. 19,000 cows, 70,000 monkeys, and one insouciant muskrat. The 70,000 monkeys are from China, or used to be from China. According to a 2023 report from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Monkeys, sorry, Medicine, quote, U.S. researchers had been forced to change or abandon projects because of difficulty obtaining monkeys. China, which supplied more than half of the 70,000 research monkeys used annually in the U.S., stopped exporting them in 2020 which coincided with and was because of the coronavirus. And I'm going to say it's okay. I think it was a good decision to stop taking China's monkeys. But now, according to the journal Science, but also the area of human knowledge science, quote, Bainbridge, a rural town in southwest Georgia with a population of 14,000, could soon become home to 30,000 additional residents, monkeys. There's a company called Safer Human Medicine, the M standing for medicine in this case, not monkeys, and they will build an 80-hectare facility. I don't know what a hectare is. It's 30,000 monkeys worth of a facility. They had a graphic on the page in the journal Science. There were no monkeys depicted, so it just looked like a building that could have housed anything, but it will be housing 30,000 monkeys. We need the monkeys. Want to buy a monkey? They cost, want to guess how much a monkey costs? Back when they were coming from China, they were 7,000. We can't really rely on those cheap Chinese imported monkeys. American monkeys, good old-fashioned American monkeys, $20,000 each. USA, USA. Now on to the cows. There was a terrible smell in Cape Town, South Africa. Gag-inducing, horrendous. Why? Well, a giant ship docked off the port had been transporting cows from Brazil to Iraq as... Animal Protection Officer Grace DeLong tells South Africa News 24. There's quite a lot of feces, which is obviously what people are complaining about in Cape Town. Our concern is obviously not the smell for the, for the humans, but for the animals. Can you imagine being that cat, the, one of the cattle that are inside that lying in their own feces? And there's over approximately 19,000 cattle on board. No, I cannot imagine being a cattle on that ship or a cattle in any circumstance. And a cattle can't imagine being on a ship either. They really don't get maritime travel or ships or Iraq or why they were going to Iraq. I don't get that either. But all the cows all together, not mucked for quite a while, create quite a horrific smell. It was interesting because most of the news played this story out of Cape Town as horrible smell hit city. Some played it as five cattle dead on ship. I don't know, five out of 19,000 cattle. I'm not going to say that's good. What I'm going to say is, yeah, I don't really know what's a good threshold for transporting almost 20,000 cattle across the sea. I'm going to say that this ships full of 20,000 cows are really, really why we do not need the Houthis hitting any 
ships in the Red Sea. And finally, one insouciant muskrat. There's no actual story there. Just wanted to include it because of the rule of three. I mean, I could spin one out. I remember my grandpappy told me the tale of old Jiminy. He was one insouciant muskrat. But you know, I just wanted to give you the insouciant muskrat as the punctuation on the cows and the monkeys. And this has been a number of animal stories. On the show today, I shall talk about inclusion of women in movies. I'm for it. But first, let us delve into the Fonnie Willis hearing in which the Atlanta DA's former boyfriend, Nathan Wade, testified, as did Wade's former law partner, Terrence Bradley. Fannie Willis has been getting, well, she was somewhat faulted for engaging in the relationship to begin with, but mostly she's been celebrated for giving great quotes on the witness stand. But our guest, Atlanta defense attorney Andrew Fleischman, did not see it that way. He was critical of the sprawling nature of the RICO charges that Willis brought, and he has been critical of Willis's tactics and testimony. And even though he goes up against the DA as a defense attorney, and this may mean that Fleischman is in trouble, we will have him here on our show to offer a perspective that you shan't hear anywhere else. I find it informed and interesting. I don't know if we'll say enjoy, but hearken to the words of Andrew Fleischman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A man might not be a plan, but we have planned for the following man to come on and help us understand what Fannie Willis said on the stand. Andrew Fleischman is an Atlanta-based defense attorney, a huge critic of Donald Trump, who offers a different perspective from the ones that we've been hearing from national media when it comes to the disqualification hearings on Atlanta DA Fannie Willis. She got you go-girled by just about everyone in the national media, but Fleischman says she hurt her case, not just by her behavior, but by how she actually comported herself. Andrew, welcome to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me. So, as I said to the audience, you thought she hurt her case, but did she have another choice but to testify and to testify in that manner? Uh, She completely had a choice. I think the judge was about to rule that she did not have to testify right when she burst into that room like the Kool-Aid man and sat down in the chair. So she wanted to testify. She thought it would help her case. But, you know, Nathan Wade had already testified. They could have just relied on that. She made a choice that it would benefit her maybe politically or that she'd be more likely to win if she did it. Uh, I don't think it did help her case, though. Now, was that be just because she testified and therefore will have opened herself up to factual inquiries or the manner in which she testified, which she did get kudos for, at least her performance to the lay public? I, I mean, as a guy who puts criminal defendants on the stand, like I would not let my client act that way, mm-hmm. even if they were wrongfully accused, especially if they were wrongfully accused, you know, basic politeness, answering the question, yes or no. And you could tell the judge was perturbed by it, right? I have never seen a judge threaten to strike somebody's testimony in all my years of practice. He threatened to strike hers. 
if she kept being non-responsive to questions and sort of going off on tangents. So if you're talking about, hey, is this person neutral and reasonable and able to try this case in a fair way? That is not the behavior you want to associate with, right? Yeah. Yeah. But do you think I could understand why you'd want to, wouldn't want to present that to a jury, but the judge, though human, is in a different category. You just laid out how he at least gave some indication that he was perturbed. Do you think, is there any, maybe you know him, is there any reason to believe it played particularly poorly with the judge? I mean, just that motion, to, when he threatened to strike a testimony, called a five-minute recess, that's not stuff that happens in a normal hearing. And I think the judge, you know, he was sort of indicating, hey, please be normal. Just just be regular. Don't yell at Ashley Merchant. Don't, you know, just answer the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and honestly, it wasn't until Steve Sadow came in that we saw, like, what you do when a witness is acting like that, right? You object. You say, hey, please be non-responsive. Please answer my question. This is the, other, this is the other attorney for other defendants, yes. Who, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, Ashley Merchant really played very nicely with her didn't really break a smile or raise a tone with her, even when she was calling her things. And that was also a deliberate choice, right? When you're talking to a witness who is being a little bit you know, unpleasant, you want to stay pleasant with them, typically, until they give you the opening. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Yeah. Because there are probably other considerations than when you've ever put a witness on the stand. You, All of your witnesses on the stand weren't thinking in the back or front of their minds, ooh, I have to convince a jury and that jury might be watching this and might actually like my performance. Do you think that was going on? And do you think it was a good calculation? I don't know if that was her calculation as much as that her, her re-election people are going to announce re-election in March, right? That's the due date. Yeah. She does not want a challenger. She wants to be politically strong. She needs her polling to be good. So having a big demonstration and a show of strength here was really important for her so that she can continue to run unopposed. I don't think it would benefit her with a jury particularly as much as, hey, keep her in this job. So you wrote a piece for the Daily Beast and you introduced a concept of actual conflict, which seems to have some words that I might understand, but the law might understand differently. Could you explain what actual conflict of interest is and how it might apply to this case? So in Georgia, an actual conflict of interest is like just a demonstrated reason that this person might be doing stuff they would not ordinarily do. So in this instance, you know, Fonnie Wells brought this case in a really complicated way that took a long time to investigate, takes a long way to try. That decision by itself does not make that much sense, but then she has a personal relationship with Nathan Wade, and that decision also enriched him to the tune of $728,000. So you might say, gosh, it seems like a bad strategy if you were just thinking about it in a vacuum. And now you have a potential explanation for that strategy. She is enriching someone she has a personal relationship with. And if you look at like the federal rules that bind federal prosecutors, you are not allowed to participate in a case if someone with a substantial financial stake is a close personal friend of yours. That's the rule to avoid exactly this sort of thing. Uh, and also when they have special counsel, those are independent and picked by a separate office. They have a lot of ways they try to keep exactly this sort of thing from happening because it doesn't look good. Yeah. Explain to me the parts and much of her testimony centered on why she might have cash, lots of cash lying around. Her father came in, offered testimony as to that. And I'll credit it. I'll say she's not lying. She was always raised to have lots of cash on hand. And it's part of the, uh, you know, his experience being a Black Panther or her experience as a Black woman. Fine. How does that address the concerns that the defense lawyers were bringing up? So the judge's major concern he announced on Monday before the hearing was about whether she was receiving a financial benefit. 
So that's the that's the thing she really wanted to put the pin back in the grenade on. Okay, I was not receiving a financial benefit. The problem is we have like sixteen thousand dollars of credit card statements showing money going to her, and the only money going back the other way is cash that, for which there is no record because Nathan Wade never deposited it. Um, so she needs to go ahead and credibly establish that she has reimbursed him, so it does not look like she received a fairly large financial benefit from the relationship out of the funds he got from Fulton County. Now, I'm not sure whether just showing reimbursement fixes it, right? Because I'm married. My wife and I intermingle our finances. I pay for some stuff. She pays for some stuff. You might still have a benefit even if you're paying for each other's things. Um, but I think she did the best possible job she could of showing, hey, I didn't get a big financial benefit like it looks on these unrebutted credit card statements. She also said at one point, I think, I don't have a checkbook. <laughs> yeah. Right? She doesn't have could a checkbook and she doesn't hold hands. This seems impeachable, though. This seems like something that a good defense attorney could actually figure out pretty quickly. I was a little frustrated that people weren't nailing her down on particulars more. Like, if I were crossing her, I'd be like, where was your first date with Nathan Wade? And hope mm -hmm. she slips up and gives a, a location you can show happened a year earlier. Right. That sort of thing. Um, they really just sort of let her do her own thing. But yeah, I, of course, you impeach her on that. Who cares? That's a slip up or maybe she's being metaphorical. But... You know, the threat, the, the looming threat in this case, I think, is that Ashley Merchant and Steve Sato suggested they have cell phone location data in this case, which is crazy. I've never seen a defense attorney get that. So presumably they are going to try to admit evidence to show Nathan Wade was with Fonnie Willis before 2022, like at her home, maybe, or on vacation. Mm -hmm. That's going to be really interesting to see play out. How compelling was the witness testimony, uh, the former friend of Fonnie Willis, who said, no, she saw hugging and kissing before the relationship was said to have started? You know, I, I feel of two ways. I think her testimony was vague, right? She really didn't want to be saying it. That was clear. She didn't want to be there. On the other hand, like the vagueness of her statement really cuts against the idea that she's perjuring herself just to hurt mm -hmm. Fonnie Willis, right? Like if she's out there to gut her former friend for firing her, she would be vivid and give lots of detail. Uh, instead, she hired a lawyer so she wouldn't have to be there. And then you had to pull every word out of her with pliers. So I'm of two minds on her. It's not, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not blockbuster testimony, but the way she gave it made it seem like she didn't have a motive to lie. Have you ever had clients who had a financial question hanging over them and were successfully able to convince a jury, no, it was all cash, and therefore whatever um, financial impropriety they were charged with was uh, not pursued or dismissed? I, I can't say that I have. I mean, what happens a lot in gang cases, right, is somebody's on Facebook and they've got a big pile of cash in front of them. And what prosecutors, even prosecutors in Fulton County say is, those are proceeds of gang activity. Someone carrying around large amounts of cash is indicative of their being a criminal. When Nathan Wade said that he was often paid in cash by his clients, yeah, if you are a criminal defense attorney, that happens because that is the way that some of them transact business. Uh, so to a lot of criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors, that would be suspicious and juries might be suspicious of it. But like you said, Fonnie Willis was as credible on that as she could be. Her father was the best witness in the whole hearing. Who didn't want to have a beer with that guy? Right, right. Do you think that Nathan Wade was sufficiently, came off as sufficiently honest and forthcoming and candid? No. Um, I thought he was a great witness in demeanor. He's obviously an experienced witness. He was calm. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't say anything. He answered the question. But then some of his answers were just ridiculous. You know, being asked, hey, when you wrote down that you were not married on a divorce form as a family lawyer, 
what did you mean by that? He said, oh, I meant I wasn't happily married at the time I was having the affair. <laughs> that's that's not credible. Like, you would have to be a really dumb non-lawyer to think that that's what they meant on your divorce paper. <laughs> and the, the judge's facial expression when he said it was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I would say you'd have to be a really dumb human being to think that. It has nothing to do with having passed the bar or not. Yeah, uh, you know, if someone asked me, were you married to this, this person in 2022? I don't say, oh gosh, well, were we happy? Yeah. <laughs> I checked the legal form. Yeah. Um, will this all come down to if the judge credits Fonnie Willis's testimony, buys her explanations? I don't think so, because, you know, Terrence Bradley, you know, the state went nuclear on him when it came out that he had sent a text to Ashley Merchant saying that her filing, alleging all these things, looked good, meaning mm -hmm. it was accurate. Yeah. So they bring in a witness and they say, hey, you sexually assaulted somebody in Nathan Wade's office. That's why you were terminated. That's why you're lying here today. And uh, then the judge, and then he tried to claim that that was privilege. The judge was like, that's not even arguably privileged. You clearly don't know what privilege is. Instead, he was going to talk to him in camera. That means in chambers. Yes. About what he said. So very easily, his testimony could make or break this case, along with whatever additional evidence comes in. Right, right. So Ter Terrence Bradley was the uh, former law partner of uh, Nathan Wade. Yeah, that's right. And also, like the claim that his, you know, his knowledge was from privilege doesn't actually make any sense. He's like, I was working for him as a divorce divorce lawyer from 2017, so four years before he filed for divorce, while they were law partners. Right. You were his divorce attorney, and he never paid you, and you never signed a contract to that effect. That doesn't actually make sense as how his legal representation works. That'd be like if you and I are chilling at a bar, and you're like, hey, man, what do you think about this? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about divorcing my wife in four years. That doesn't really establish an attorney-client relationship. No, even and if I'm I pay sure. you a dollar, right? Even if I pick up your bar <laughs> If you paid yeah. me a dollar, it'd be better. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Better call Saul style. So if... I'm reading, uh, I'm not talking about MAGA media, but if, as I read the general consensus of national media, it's that there was just no basis for disqualifying Fonnie Willis. And um, MSNBC says this, and Lawfare, I forward you an article by Anna Bauer and Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare. They came to this conclusion. I think almost everyone but you has come to this <laughs> conclusion. Give me the That's case true. why... We shouldn't be shocked if she's disqualified, or should we be shocked, but you think it's slightly possible, but not really plausible? Um, here's, I think, your best pitch for why disqualification is necessary. First off, U.S. Supreme Court says an appearance of impropriety in a prosecutor can violate due process. Mm -hmm. So there is this case where a judge appointed someone to be a contempt prosecutor, and that contempt prosecutor had pending litigation against the company he was suing. And they're like, well, listen, if your choices about how you investigate this case and what you do are affected by your personal interest, that's the appearance of propriety, even if it didn't affect your actions. That's bad. Georgia cases have cited to that. Federal rules for prosecutors would mean that you couldn't be on this case. So what we have to be saying here is that Georgia has a different set of rules from what we would have federally to say that this is okay. And then there's just so much about this that stinks. Nathan Waits, his billing, is crazy. He billed 24 hours in a day. He billed eight hours to read case summaries. And the reason you summarize a case is so it takes less time. Yeah. He, his billing looked terrible. An ethics expert said that it didn't look plausible. You have a really big financial benefit. You have the fact that almost any lawyer could have done that same job for less money, including somebody who already worked for her office. And then you have her conduct on the stand and at Bethel BMA Church, where she said that criticism of her role was racism. Yeah. And so a judge looks at all that. And says, well, if I even have to make the credibility call, do I believe Fonnie Willis? Aren't we already at an appearance of impropriety? 
I have to decide if she's lying in this case. And, and bear in mind, more stuff could happen afterwards. He could decide she's telling the truth. And a month from now, we find that new evidence that she wasn't. And that's something that could be hanging over this case from now until appeal three years from now. So if I'm the judge, pragmatically, I'm looking at some testimony from witnesses that doesn't look honest, some bizarre behavior, bad testimony from Fonnie Willis, or at least a bad demeanor. And I'm thinking, gosh, do I want to try the most important criminal case in a state court in maybe American history with a pretty good disqualification motion pending over it for appeal? Pragmatically, as a judge, I might think, disqualify. Let's just get somebody clean on this case and let it roll the way it's supposed to roll. How much of these problems are solved by Nathan Wade just recusing himself? I don't I don't think it, it fixes it, right? Because the allegation here is that the considerations behind the indictment, behind trying this case in a way that's going to take two years to bring to trial based on the YSL trial, uh, were to enrich her romantic partner. And if you believe that, then you got to have somebody else take a second look at those choices. Hmm. And do you think that this would see, even if the judge doesn't remove her from the case, would it open up the case to ser- to uh, serious vulnerability on appeal? Yeah. Uh, I mean, even though, listen, the judge will get every deference from the court. His credibility findings will be the final word. If he believes Fani, the court of appeals will believe Fani. Right. But the, the problem is, is not just these facts, but whatever new facts emerge. And lawyers can keep moving for reconsideration as they learn new things. I mean, what it comes down to is I'm honestly skeptical this relationship only started in 2022. And I think there's a good chance. Here's why. Uh, when the state objected to Terrence Bradley talking about what he learned, they said it was privileged, which is to say that Nathan Wade told him that he was seeing Fonnie Willis before 2022. That's the only way it would be privileged, would be if the client made that communication to his lawyer. Okay, so pr- an, an assertion of privilege is not like the Fifth Amendment, where you can say... Uh, I don't want to say what they told me. You can only say it's privileged if he did tell me and speak to this directly. Yes. It's only if it is a communication from the client. Right. Is it privileged? So by saying we object, it's privileged. They were saying this this is a communication from Nathan Wade to Terrence Bradley. It's not just gossip. Right. Nathan Wade told him. That's a tension I've seen in this case that I don't think other people have really picked up on. But the state's objection suggests to me Nathan Wade did tell Terrence Bradley he was seeing her before 2022. And... That means to me, even if the judge can't consider it, the rest of us can. Well, wait a minute. What if Nathan Wade told him that he didn't? Wouldn't that be privileged also? Well, then the state wouldn't be fighting tooth and nail to keep it out. Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> like, you don't fight tooth and nail to keep out evidence that helps your case. So that doesn't make sense for the strategy for the state. That's true, but we might come to that inference as reasonable people, but will the judge be able to come to that inference or is it that the judge will determine, oh, that's not really privileged if what he told, well, no. Will the judge be able to come to that inference is my question. Well, the judge won't have to because he's going to hear from Mr. Bradley yeah. what he knows this is important. in chambers. Right, right. In camera. So yeah, in camera, it's just, um, but imagine being a judge called upon, you get definitive evidence that Nathan Wade lied from Terrence Bradley. How are you then going to find him credible? How do you get that out of your mind when you're making your credibility determination? That's really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, we're human beings and we just have trouble compartmentalizing information in that kind of way. So I, I, I guess I am alone. You're right. I don't think almost anybody agrees with me. But these are the reasons why I think this case is stronger for disqualification than people have said. Um, and also just generally, uh, Ashley Merchant's kind of a kick-ass lawyer at investigations. She has a long history of tracking stuff down. If she says she has the goods, she fumbled getting them in. Don't get me wrong, but I think they're there to be had. When will uh, Judge Scott McAfee make a decision, do you think? 
probably the next couple of weeks. Uh-huh. In theory, he could take as long as 90 days, but he's a pretty diligent judge. I think he will rule quickly. What's the timeline for this trial commencing if she's disqualified and if she's not? If she's disqualified, you know, Burt Jones would disqualify. She was disqualified from prosecuting Burt Jones 18 months ago, and there's still no replacement on the case. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea when the case will be tried. Um, if she's not disqualified, I understand they might try to start trying this case in August. But there's another RICO case going on in Georgia right now. It's the YSL trial. It's a gang case. Yeah. And they took eight months just for jury selection. Uh, and they're currently on like their second year of this case. And a juror is moving out of town. So now they have to deal with whether he's still an eligible juror. All this to say, even if the case starts before the election, there is no way we'll be anywhere close to a verdict before Donald Trump is or is not president. And finally, the last question I have is personal to you. You are a defense attorney in Atlanta. This means that you tangle with the prosecutor's office, but it also means you have to work with them. Hey, can you plead my client down to a drunken disorderly? No, the best I could do is a DUI. Come on, Sammy, we go way back, etc. Aren't you, or are you, or give me your rationale if someone in good faith says, Andrew, I love you. What are you doing here? Why are you making such an enemy of this office? What do you say to them? Well, first off, I mostly do appeals out of that office. So an appeal means I come back, I burn everything down after it's done, uh-huh. which means nobody negotiates with me. So <laughs> that's helpful. I'm the least popular person in the legal system. I'm the person who makes the judge try a case twice. Um, uh, but on top of that, like you might think that prosecutors would be mad at me and hate me and not want to offer deals, but many of them feel the same way and are glad someone is saying stuff because we don't talk about this, but this office is not otherwise well run. And there are serious problems that the press has not done a good job covering. Uh, who knows? Uh, also, hey, in full candor, I have clients on appeal who would be better, who would benefit if we had a new DA coming. Mm-hmm. So there's my, there's my second benefit. If yeah. something happened and funny wheels kicked out. There are some more reasonable prosecutors in the world who might help some of the people I'm trying to help. Also, if I can offer some psychology or my own psychological insight, just from your Twitter feed, I mean, if on a scale of one to 100, how much does a person not want Donald Trump to get elected again? You're 100, maybe 105. You feel this so strongly that you want the cases against him and his Confederates to go forward in the best manner. And I sense that you're aggrieved, not just by her conduct jeopardizing that, but even the very fact, well, I don't sense, you flat out said bringing these complex RICO charges were not the best way. So perhaps, do, you know, let, let me ask you to reflect on that. Do you think there's something going on there? I, I don't know what's going on. I, I think that if you were trying this case to secure a conviction quickly and with a minimum chance of appeal, you would do it completely differently. If your goal was just to win, you would have won by now. Mm. But there's secondary goals here, maybe political benefit, national attention, extra funding from Fulton County commissioners, maybe future office. And those are coloring the way the case is being tried. And for something this important, I think your only consideration should be getting the conviction. That's my conviction. Andrew Fleischman is an Atlanta-based trial and appellate lawyer. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. 2023, the year of Barbie, the most popular movie in America for the year, the highest grossing movie ever directed by a woman domestically, the highest grossing movie 
ever directed by a female, live action, worldwide, all time. Also take into account that three movies directed by women were nominated for Best Picture. That is the most ever. So therefore, the USC Annenberg Center's inclusion initiative report must show that some progress is being made. It does not. Cut to Variety Headline 2023, marked historic low for women in leading film roles, according to new study, quote, this is an industry failure. So the authors of this latest USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative assert that of the top 100 movies, only 30 featured women or girls in lead or co-lead roles. That figure, according to them, marks a sharp downturn from 2022, which tallied 44 films and a number identical to that in 2010. The headline of the report was 2023 was a historic low for women leads, co-leads, and top films. Annenberg's been studying leads and co-leads in top films since 2007 when the number of women who were leads or co-leads was 20. Wait, so how's 30 historically low? I have all the charts here since 2007 when they started. Prevalence of female leads or co-leads went 20, 27, 27, then it hit 30, 23, 24, 28. So this indicates that 30, which may be the lowest since 2014 or may not, we'll get to that. And here's us getting to that. Was it really only 30 films that had a female lead or co-lead? Well, the 11th highest grossing domestic film of all time was Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour, which the survey didn't count as an example of inclusion because it was a documentary. Okay, but it starred a woman in almost every frame. It set records. It was seen by millions. Studio marketing departments got behind it. It garnered our attention. The survey also didn't count Killers of the Flower Moon, in which Lily Gladstone got a nomination for the Oscar for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Now, her character was on screen for an hour of the movie, but Leo DiCaprio's was on for closer to two, so maybe that's acceptable. And researchers have to have cutoffs and make choices, and that's all fine, but there's no actual list of the 30 movies that they considered women leads or co-leads. There's also some weird notations in the survey saying, for instance, that There were more movies with men over 45, many more than with women over 45, and it counted as a movie starring a man over 45, Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer's only movie that came out in 2023 was The Marvels, which of course starred three women. He had a small-ish role. He was not a lead in that movie. I don't know how they counted their numbers. Even if there were three or four female leads that they didn't count because they were a documentary like Taylor Swift or Beyonce's documentary, also a top 100 movie, or if they didn't count Titanic or Black Panther Wakanda Forever, it didn't come out in 2023, even though it was the, one of the top 100 grossing movies of 2023, which means people saw it and women were represented in the eyes of viewers in 2023. What they're doing is much less useful than it has ever been. This is not their fault, but their methodology is they look at the top 100 grossing movies at the box office. But the top grossing movies are no longer indicative of what people are watching. In 2023, the 50th to 100 top grossing movies made an average of around $20 million. But in 2007, when the survey started, that number wasn't 20 million, it was 30 million. Five years later, the 50th to 100th best movie on average made $40 million. And ticket prices were cheaper then. Lots more people, millions more people were seeing these movies back then. 
actual movie viewership went online. And it's not that the survey totally ignores that, but they ignore the importance of it. The most popular movie on Netflix, not TV show, but movie, was The Mother, starring Jennifer Lopez. It was viewed for over a quarter billion hours. Speaking on the Bill Simmons podcast, the journalist Derek Thompson noted this and made a calculation. The Mother was watched the same number of hours on Netflix as Barbie was watched in movie theaters in 2023. Wow. So Mother is number one. Barbie is number two, or tied for number one. And yes, then you have not one but two Mario Brothers and Spider-Man, Spider-Verse, and Guardians of the Galaxy and Oppenheimer, men, 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 men. And then you get to The Little Mermaid. But if you do go by the question, did Americans who actually watched movies watch fewer movies with a female lead? The answer is clearly no, they didn't. They probably watched more movies with a female lead than they ever had before. If the worry is that the movie industry uh, doesn't pay for the promotion or doesn't commission works with female leads. A survey of the box office is no longer the metric to judge that worry. If the premise is that moviegoers don't get a chance to see women characters, the evidence says that's flat out wrong. If the premise is this one slice of the movie business in theater viewing, which is dying off and less relevant than it ever has been, if that is less likely to feature women than men, and if that figure isn't improving, well, the survey indicates that's true. But also the lack of women are probably why, or could be argued why, these theatrical films are dying, right? How's that theatrical business going for you, excluding women? I would say something else is going on. I would say the only real reason to attend a film in the theater, maybe you want a night out with friends or your partner, but it's a spectacle. And most Action movies, big 3D movies, most of those types of movies skew male. Rom-coms, just comedies in general, tend to skew female, and those have been totally taken out of movie theaters. Barbie was the rare case where you go to the movies for community, a communal activity, but that's not so easily replicated. I don't think that what Annenberg is putting together indicates that opportunities are being denied female protagonists or representation is being denied female audience members. I'm pretty sure that the Annenberg inclusion study doesn't want to find that things are improving. Stacey L. Smith, who directs the study and the Institute calls herself the foremost disruptor of inequality in the entertainment industry. So by her own standards, she's doing terribly at her job, isn't she? Year after year, her institute announces things are bad and getting worse. I don't think she's doing terribly. Of course, I don't think her job is to actually disrupt the industry. I think it's to put together a report that reliably reports that things are pretty bad. Stacey Smith became best known for promoting a specific inclusion initiative that was touted by Frances McDormand in her Oscar acceptance speech. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion rider. The idea caught Hollywood's attention. Hundreds of stories were written about it. Michael B. Jordan said he was adopting inclusion riders for all his projects. A New York Times follow-up a bit more than a year later reported that Jordan never did adopt them. Hollywood rejected them as too formal and binding. And Frances McDormand has since said that she wished she never mentioned inclusion writers. 
This was Stacey L. Smith's greatest moment in the sun. But the actual goal of inclusion is not going terribly at all. Movies are becoming more inclusive, not via writers, but via less constraining mechanisms. Mostly it's just economics. The movie industry is becoming more female and certainly more diverse because the marketplace is becoming more diverse, but also because the pipeline of female talent is being more and more nurtured, given opportunities. I do think, and Annenberg does produce a study of this, the number of female directors do lag. They're being either penalized or not given the opportunities in the marketplace, and that should change. But the female leads, I think they're studying totally the wrong thing, and they're looking for answers that aren't there, but they need to be there. I mean, we all know there's a trend of taking the male blockbuster movie, Ocean's Eleven, Ghostbusters, Superbad, and remaking it with female leads. Of course, the online arguments ensue, but that is a movement. That is a trend. We can't say it's not a trend. Yes, there's not parity between men and women as leads in the movies, especially the movies in theaters. But Annenberg depends on the news being bad. They are activists. Not an insult, it's in their mission statement. The Annenberg Inclusion Initiative works in three major areas, research, advocacy, and action. Advocacy, they define as exist to foster inclusion and give a voice to the disenfranchised or marginalized groups. Action offers simple actions for complex solutions to facilitate social change at the student industry and societal level. So they have to prod, which I suppose is fine, but as an academic institution, they should first and foremost have fealty to the facts. Yet this year's announcement, start, the official press release, starts with the words, Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig may have been snubbed by the Academy Awards this year, but that's merely the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the entertainment industry's exclusion of women. Well, those two women were snubbed, though, of course, five other female actresses were nominated for Best Actress, so Robbie would have taken one of their slots. And yes, Greta Gerwig was not nominated, but Justine Triette was for Anatomy of a Fall. And it should also be noted that Celine Song's Past Lives was not nominated for Best Director either, just like Greta Gerwig. For an organization, Annenberg, that often makes claims of erasure of women of color, that was an odd choice. Annenberg, a couple years ago, issued a report finding that only 23.6% of Muslim characters on screen were women, and 185 films didn't feature even one Muslim girl or woman. They noted that male characters were seen 175 times more than a Muslim female character in their sample. That's not Muslim males versus Muslim females. It was male characters versus Muslim female characters. The men are 49% of the population. And then this year, remember that report came out a couple years ago, and this year we had The Marvels, which was a big blockbuster attempt, which did not star Kelsey Grammer, had a prominent female Muslim character. And really, how do you even know if The Little Mermaid's a Muslim or if The Wasp of Ant-Man and the Wasp was a Muslim or if any of the three women in 80 for Brady was Muslim if they don't mention their religion? By the way, Annenberg claimed that just three movies featured female leads over 45, Cocaine Bear, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and Magic Mike's Last Dance. Wait, why not 80 for Brady? Quote, the report noted that they did not include pure ensemble films such as 80 for Brady. But if all of the ensemble were older women, that doesn't count as female representation? You just get the strong sense that when the evidence starts indicating that the situation is improving, the Annenberg inclusion team focuses on some other evidence. To quote Stacey L. Smith in the report on representation, quote, this is a catastrophic step back for girls and women in film. I do think there's plenty of evidence that things are getting better, provided you know where to look for that evidence and 
that you weren't averse to actually finding it. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Quaint Mallard's them both. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, Thanks for listening.